0: Amen. I'd invite you to continue standing as we read together from the second chapter in Mark's gospel, picking up in verse 23. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? When he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. All God's people said, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me our blessed Savior? Would you make this book live to me? In your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So almost from... the very moment of Jesus' arrival on the scene in the beginning of his public ministry, he had a tremendous target on his back. As he arrived and he revealed himself to be exactly who the angels and the stars in the sky and the shepherds in the field and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit had declared. Not just the Christ not just the Messiah coming to usher in the kingdom of God, but the very Son of God Himself. We find Him again this morning in conflict with the religious leaders of His day. You see, when when Jesus arrived, He could have chosen to play nice. There was a religious system in place, and the Pharisees, and the scribes, and the priests, they had it all under control. And so Jesus could have showed up and just blended in. He could have just found his spot. He could have just found a patch. And after all, people were, people were on fire for religion. After the preaching of John the Baptist and the call to repentance and his baptism, and then as the people began to see the miracles that Jesus performed and hear the power in his preaching, people that previously cared absolutely nothing about religion, all of a sudden they were on fire. They wanted to hear more. They wanted to get involved, but Jesus wasn't going to play that way. You see the gospel message that Jesus came to proclaim, it was one that was completely and totally incompatible with any other means of justification. That the salvation that Jesus offered and the gospel which he preached was Jesus Christ plus nothing equals salvation. And that to try and add anything to this Jesus or to try and add anything to this salvation or to try to do anything to earn your justification is going to spoil the whole batch. And it's going to leave you broken and lost and without hope in this world. And so it should be no wonder then that the religious leaders that had found their identity in this system, they gained their sense of self-worth. They had found their place in this world all wrapped up in this religious system that they had built. It should be no wonder then that they dogged him at every turn. That they followed after him and they were consistently seeking ways to trip him up and to confront him. And so we spent the last three weeks exploring three of these encounters. Exploring these, these times when Jesus would encounter the religious leaders and conflict was sure, to, was, was sure to come out of that. So today we come to the fourth in a string of five. At the end of this string, what we will find, at the end of next week's lesson, God willing, what we will find is that the political leaders of the day would join forces with the cultural leaders of the day, the religious leaders and the political leaders. They would join forces with a mindset on destroying Christ, that these people that really had nothing else to do with each other, they had no use for each other, they would be joined, they would be united in their hatred for Jesus and the determination in their heart that he needed to be destroyed. And so, verse 23 of this morning's text. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. So some context helps here. It was not uncommon in that day for God's people to just pass through somebody else's land. You don't do that today. That's the way to get shot today. You don't get to just drive down Ramsey Road and say, you know, I'd sure love to get to Miller-Wilson. I'm just going to cut through this property right here. I'm sure nobody would mind. But in that day, it was very common. People would travel. They wouldn't always stick to the highways and to the roads. They would just pass right through the fields. And if you've ever seen a crop field, you know that it lends itself to this, that you can pass right through the ears of of corn or the grain or the wheat or whatever it is, that they make these rows, and that it was very common for people in that day to just pass right on through. Now, it says that, there was grain in the field, and so it must have been near the time of harvest, probably late April, sometime near the Passover. And as the disciples were passing, they're just reaching out their hand, and they're grabbing hands full of grain, perhaps wheat. They're, 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 they're grabbing this, this grain as they go. And what they would have done is as they grabbed this grain, they would have rubbed it together in their hand like this to separate it, and then just kind of just tossed it in the air a little bit. And as you toss it, a little bit of wind comes, and it blows away the shaft. Talked about shaft on Wednesday night. It's lightweight, it's worthless, it's nothing. It can be blown away by just the gentlest of breezes. And so as as they would have thrown it up like this, the shaft would have blown away, then they would have been left with the stuff that you eat. They were just popping it in their mouth. And so I'm picturing something maybe like dry oats. Not the most flavorful of stuff, not not the most delicious, but it was some calories for their belly. And so these guys, they were they were traveling, they were traveling along and you can, you can imagine that because it was Jesus' pattern, it says it was the Sabbath here, you can imagine because it was Jesus' pattern that he would go into the synagogues on, on the Sabbath to preach and to teach, that they were perhaps traveling between two synagogues. They were traveling from one place to another. This is really, a, a, it's a sweet scene to me. This, this idea of, of Jesus and his men just passing through this field like this. I can imagine James picking on John or John picking on James. And Peter's cutting jokes and he's running ahead. And it's just guys being guys, just on the move, traveling through, popping some stuff in their mouth. And it's, it's important for you to know that not only was this a common scene, but it was legal. It was legal and it was acceptable for people to do what these guys were doing. In fact, God had made specific provision in Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Just a beautiful picture of God's provision. God cared deeply for the poor. God was a God of provision. And so written into the law that he gave his people were acts just like this, that it was acceptable. It was acceptable if you went into somebody's vineyard. You could grab a few handfuls of grapes and you could eat them. You just couldn't go stashing a bunch in your bag for later. And as, you, and as you found yourself in somebody's standing grain, you could grab it, you could pop it in your mouth, you could fill your belly, but you can't bust out your sickle and just wipe out their whole field. And so what God had written into his law for his people was that they were to make provision for the poor among them. When they were bringing the sickle, when they were harvesting, they were to leave the edges, the ends of their field, so that the poor people could come and gather that was there. Remember, that's how Ruth met Boaz. She was there and she was, she was gathering because God cares for the poor. He cares for those that are there, and he's telling them, you've, you've got this opportunity as you're passing through, as you will, as you're passing through, to just grab this grain and, and pop it in your mouth. And again, it, it, it warms my heart. I'd love to have a picture of this, a, a physical picture of this, and, and imagine what, what this looks like. We don't know exactly how many followers were there with him at this time, but as they're, as they're passing through again and just, just kind of snacking as they went along. You know who doesn't love sweet pictures like that? You don't know who doesn't love casual pictures? laid back, sweet pictures like Jesus and his disciples walking through a field on the Sabbath? The religious leaders, they can't stand this stuff. And so you knew that a confrontation was coming. Verse 24, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The Sabbath is going to be at the center of so many confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. The the Sabbath was, was really key. It was kind of that, it was that integral piece to what separated God's people from the rest of the nations was the keeping of the Sabbath and the circumcision. And and with good reason. You'll remember that you remember that God had called his people to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and they hadn't done a great job of that. And so what, what you'll find is that These people were so hypersensitive to it. In fact, this this isn't the first time that Jesus and the Pharisees would get into it over the Sabbath. If you look back in your Bible to John 5, this was a scene that happened a little bit before this. Back in John 5, Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. They're at the pool of Bethesda. And as they found out that he had healed this man on the Sabbath, this is what happens. John 5, 18. This was why the Jews were seeking to kill him all the more. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath but he's even calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Yes, because he was calling himself God, but the flashpoint was these acts, the, 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 the setting, the catalyst for these confrontations they had. It was the Sabbath because the people, again, they hadn't always done a great job of remembering the Sabbath and keeping it holy. This was a big part of what led those people into exile. You remember during our time in Nehemiah, even after the people had come back, Nehemiah shows up and he finds the people continuing to sell. He finds foreigners on the outside of the wall. They're continuing to sell on the Sabbath. The people inside, they've made justifications for why they can ignore the Sabbath because they're allowing these foreigners, these pagans, to do the work and all they're doing is buying from them. And you remember what Nehemiah said. What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And then he told them, if you continue, if you continue to profane the Sabbath in this way, I will come down there and lay hands on you. I love that about Nehemiah. Side note, you remember it was right after this, when he caught his people were marrying foreign women. They were allowing their boys to be married off to foreign women. You remember what he told them? Actually, you remember what he did to them? He beat them and he pulled their hair out. I love Nehemiah. I love his combative nature. I love that he goes all in. But this was was, the driving force behind this was the breaking of the Sabbath. It really was that big a deal. And not only did the people know that there was a curse that was upon them for breaking the Sabbath, they believed that very real blessing could come. There was a number of rabbis that taught that if they could just get all Jews all over the world to just one time on one Sabbath to keep it perfectly, that that's when the Messiah would come. So let that be your scene for a moment, okay? That you know that your people have been dragged into exile because they didn't keep the Sabbath rightly. You know that one of your heroes of the faith, a man like Nehemiah, was laying hands on people because they had broken the the Sabbath. In addition to that, this Messiah that you wanted most desperately to come, you didn't think he was going to come until everybody got their act together and kept it perfectly. These guys were really serious about the Sabbath. So it should be no surprise to us that we see him confronting Jesus and his disciples. But here's the problem. The Pharisees, it wasn't just that they didn't understand the Sabbath. It wasn't just that they didn't understand the law. They didn't understand God. You see, it's root. A failure to understand the law is a failure to understand God because God's law is found in him. See, that was what the enemy's ploy was there in the garden with Eve. He wanted to convince her that God's law was somehow separated from his person. That you could deal with the law over here, forgetting what you know to be true about God, what you've experienced to be true about God. That was the problem with the Pharisees. And I I think we can get kind of a glimpse to their heart with regards to the way they felt about God and perhaps what drove them to be so manic about their keeping of his laws and adding to his laws. If we look at Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, you remember that Jesus was talking about this master that had gone away and he had entrusted certain amounts of money to three of his servants. The first two servants, they did well. They were active. They invested. They got a good return so that when their master came back, he praised them and he rewarded them. But you remember there was that other, that wicked and that lazy servant that he just buried it in the ground, came back and gave back to the master that which was his. He was scolded and cast away into utter darkness. And the, the point to the parable is more about having an urgency An intentionality about being busy with that that God has trusted to you but but I think that if we listen to what the wicked servant said to the master it reveals to us a little bit of the heart of these Pharisees and how they got to where they were do you remember what he said the wicked servant as the master comes back and he's like you you didn't do what I asked you to do he says this Matthew 25 24 through 25 master I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow And gathering where you scattered no seed, I was afraid, so I went and hid your talent in the ground. You see, I think for these Pharisees, they saw God as a hard and cruel master, as a restrictive master, as a master that was full of nothing but judgment, nothing but wrath. So that when they saw his law, what they saw was a whip, was a whip, a beating stick in the hand of a cruel master because they completely disassociated God's goodness. They completely missed God's mercy. They completely missed God's love and God's provision and God's revelation in his law to his people. They thought it just a cruel stick in the hands of a cruel master, a demanding and a demeaning master. And so because of that, it's going to drive you, when that's the way that you view the law, when you view the law as just a thing of restriction, as just a thing that keeps you from doing things which you would otherwise enjoy to do and you distrust God in this way, it drives you in one of two directions. Either you become completely lawless. Antinomianism is the word for those that just absolutely reject the law. You either just outright reject the law and go headlong into that life of lawlessness, that form of sin, or you attempt to add to the restrictions. You believe that if God's holiness is only gained by restriction, it's only gained by saying what you can't do, then what what better way to gain additional holiness than to just add to the regulations, than to continue to pile on to the regulations? God, aren't you pleased with me now? You set the standard here. Well, I'm going to set it out here because God, you're a God that's restrictive. You're a God that withholds good things. I'm going to withhold even more good things for myself. Perhaps there I'm going to find your pleasure. Perhaps there I'm going to be justified before you. They completely missed the entire point. I was thinking as I was writing my sermon this week, it, it, it brought back to mind for me those instances when Brian Carden and I were in um, RAs together. We'd, we'd be out there in the gym with those little boys. And um, we had we had loved on these these boys, these young men, for for years, some of them. Some of them had come up since the moment they hit, I guess, five years old, kindergarten, they could come in there with us, all the way up through fifth grade. And so we had had years, and, and some of these we had known since babies. And we had proven to these boys that we, lo- that we loved them. We cared for them. It hadn't always been discipline. It had been fun. It had been, you know, we had a, Pizza parties, we'd show up for them when they needed us. We had, we had poured into these kids. The flip side of that was there was times when they needed loving discipline. And so one of the recurring things that would happen is as I was there and I was teaching the lesson, or Brian was there and Brian was teaching the lesson, I'd have a dodgeball sitting next to me. And when one of our kids, this wasn't just a stranger kid off the street, but when one of our kids, one of your kids, when they acted up, I drilled them between the eyes with a dodgeball. Now the thing was they knew I loved them. They knew I was disciplining them because I desperately wanted them to hear this truth from God's word. But I but I'd poured into them. I'd loved them. And they knew deep down this wasn't an act of malice. This wasn't an act of hatred. I didn't give them all I got, by the way. Make no mistake. If I had brought the thunder, your children would not have come home. It was more of a light thump. But the problem was we'd get these outsiders. See, we, we guarded RAs very closely with regards to who we would allow to come in there and teach with us. Because you'd get some knucklehead that would come here and go, oh, we're hitting kids in the face with dodgeballs? And they'd just start blasting kids. And they had poured nothing into these kids. They just saw this over here and they thought, oh, this is the way we act. See, that's what had happened with the Pharisees. Because what they saw from God was these acts of discipline. These acts of judgment, and all they saw was the restriction. They completely missed the love and the mercy and the compassion and the blessing that God had poured into these people. They completely missed the purpose of the law, and they missed God that was behind the law. And so they just continued to add on. They would take a law that was here and say, you know what, okay, this is God's law, and if this is good, we're going to build a fence around it to make sure that nobody gets near it. It's like your mom telling you, look, you can go outside, but don't play in the street." Stay out of the street, or you're going to get squished and you're going to die. And you say, and said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to go outside then. I'm just going to stay in the house. Except for these guys, it was even more than that. It was like saying, you know what? I'm going to move to the moon where there are no streets. But it didn't even stop there. It's like then you go to all your neighbors and tell them, you can't go outside either. That wasn't the point. It wasn't a point to the law. It wasn't a point to the rules that he had given them. And so they just add on and they add on. They really did. They piled on. And the problem was with each one of these laws that they added, with each one of these traditions that they added, with the further they moved this fence outside of God's law, they weren't moving people any closer to God. They weren't making the people any more holy. They were just adding soul-crushing, back-breaking burden upon the people, causing them to hate the law and to distrust God just like they did. Because if you read what the law of the Sabbath is, it's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. Exodus 28 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work you or your sons or your daughters or your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or your sojourner who is with you and within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. You see, the Sabbath was built into creation. That God worked for six days and he rested on the seventh. Of course, God didn't need to rest. It didn't require any expenditure of energy on his behalf to build. It was just with a word. And yet as he sat down and he rested on the seventh day, he was declaring to his creation, it is done. There's nothing else you need to do. I've got this under control. In addition to that, he was setting a pattern for his creatures. He was showing us you need rest spiritually, emotionally, physically, mentally. You need rest so that... On this Sabbath day, his people would be reminded of a couple of things. Number one, we'd be reminded of our finitude, that we're not infinite like he is infinite, and that we're not able to continue going at full speed all the time. We've got to hit a pause button, we've got to rest every once in a while. Number two, he was reminding us that he doesn't need our help. Just as when we sleep, the world keeps going, the planets keep spinning. Everything stays in orbit. The grass keeps growing. Everything keeps happening just the way God's ordained it from heaven. He doesn't need your help. And then number three, he points our hearts towards heaven, towards that eternal rest. In these moments of rest, in these moments of blessing, in these moments when our hearts are to be set aside and specific focus on the worship of him, and on our rest, we look forward towards that infinite rest where we're eternally in his presence completely and totally at rest, no longer dogged by sin and weary bodies and the worries of the day. We can truly just rest. The, the word lean back, or the phrase lean back over and over and over again. There's a song. There's a song that's come out in the last five years, and it's a, I don't even know who sings it, some lady, but she's, she's talking about leaning back. And I've talked to you before about how I love the, the mental image of the Apostle John leaning back against Christ at that last supper. That, that picture I, I don't know why I think I want to cuddle with God and I'm not saying this to be flippant like the idea of leaning back into God the fullness of my weight leaning on him resting on him not a worry in the world safe secure eternal rest with my father that that's part of what the Sabbath was meant to be It was meant to be a blessing just like all the rest of the law it was meant to be a benefit and a blessing to God's people they were to cherish this. They were to delight in this. This is an opportunity that he had given his people. And then even, even at Sinai, because, again, this was built into creation. The Sabbath wasn't just an invention there on Mount Sinai, but even as it was codified there and God wrote it with his own hand for his people, it still didn't become all that, all that more complicated. Now, they knew for sure the certain day that was to be observed as the Sabbath because that's the day that there was no manna, Remember? He said, in case you were wondering about the day, this is the day. The day before this, you'll get a double portion of the manna. You'll collect it, and it'll it'll, uh, carry you through the next day. That day is the Sabbath where you're to rest, and you're to spend time worshiping me. It really is that straightforward, that simple. But the scribes, the Pharisees, they couldn't just leave it there. They had to ask, well, what is work? What classifies as work? I don't think it's that hard a question. I know the days when I've worked, and I know the days when I haven't. Now, it's going to be different for everybody. For some people, the thought of sitting down and reading a book is heaven. Sitting down just in a library full of books and reading that is restful, that is relaxing, that is edifying, that is a blessing from God. For other people, that's nothing but work. They couldn't bear the thought of having to sit down. For some people, it depends on the book you're reading and why you're reading it. Am I reading this because I enjoy it? Am I reading this because it's something I want to know about? Or am I reading it for work? Am I reading it because somebody is forcing me to read it? But again, I don't need somebody sitting over my shoulder telling me whether or not this is working or not. At the end of the day, I know, have I worked today? Have I worked today or have I rested today? I don't need to consult the chart to figure out what classifies as what. God simply said, do not do your normal work. Do not do your normal labor on this day. If you are a gardener by trade, you probably shouldn't go messing around in your flower beds unless it's a blessing, and then do. If you're a banker... And the thought of unpiling loads full of mulch on a, sa- on a, uh, on a Sabbath, whatever day you de- declare to be the Sabbath, unloading loads full of mulch and planting a bunch of flowers, if that's restful to you, then do it. He wasn't restricting us. He wasn't setting all these boundaries. He was saying, I'm trying to bless you by causing you to set aside a day of specific worship to me and of rest for yourself because you need it. You need it more than you could possibly know. But these religious fa- folks, they wouldn't allow that to be left in the hands of common people to determine for themselves. So they set out to determine exactly what was, every situation, in every situation, they set out to make sure that they had ruled on whether this was work or whether this was rest. Now, Today we're able to look back, and, and for the Jewish people, there's a compilation of, of, of writings and teachings called the Talmud. Now the, the, the Talmud, as it is compiled, some of these sayings, some of these teachings go, go way, way back. And so by looking at the Talmud today, we can kind of have a picture of some of, these raw, some of these laws and some of these rules that would have been floating around during Jesus' time. And within the Talmud, there's 24 chapters alone on the Sabbath. And within those 24 chapters, there are 39 specific kind of, well, not specific, kind of general prohibitions, things that they believe God has said you cannot do. They're prohibited on the Sabbath. Sowing with an O, sowing with an E, reaping, building, weaving, tanning, tearing, trapping, kneading, baking, on and on and on. So they, they, they set these things, but that won't work either. Got to set the fence even farther. We can't trust the people to know what sewing is with an O or with an E. We can't trust people to know what kneading is and what baking is. We've gotta determine for them what things could even come close to that. It's not enough just that we we, we determine for them what work is, we've gotta make sure that they don't do anything which resembles or can be confused as one of those things, or anything which causes you to think about one of those things, or anything that might lead to you later doing one of those things. It's almost like these guys were Southern Baptists. They said, you know, you can't dance because dancing leads to S-E-X. It gets crazy. Because here's what they say. Honestly, this is just a, just, a, just a general list of some of the things. This is not comprehensive. You can't tie or loosen a knot. You can't sew more than one stitch. In fact, a tailor couldn't even carry a needle. You couldn't write more than one letter, and a writer couldn't even carry their pen. You couldn't carry anything weighing more than a dried fig. You could not reset a dislocated limb. You could not look for lice, because if you find the lice, you might kill it. You couldn't start a fire or cook anything. You couldn't move a chair. You couldn't look in a mirror, specifically women couldn't look in mirrors because they might find a hair out of place and fix it or a gray hair and pluck it. You can't leave a vegetable in salt because that vegetable might be pickled and that pickling is called work. You can't pick up something in public, or somebody, you can pick up something in public and set it down at home, but you can't pick up something at home and set it down in public. You can throw something in the air and catch it, but only with the same hand. If you throw it with this hand and catch it with that, that's work, you can't do it. You can't refix a collapsed roof. Now, if a roof collapses and you think that there's somebody trapped under it, you can dig just enough to find out whether or not they're alive. If they're alive, you can pull them out, but with no more effort than is necessary. If they're dead, you leave them laying until the sun goes down and the Sabbath is over. You can't walk more than 100 and, 1,999 paces. That's about 800 meters. That's half a mile. You cannot walk more than that. Although, if you set down some food at that mark, that then becomes a place of your habitat, becomes your home. You can eat some food and then begin the the 1,999 paces again. They were all going to find workarounds. But this is the law. And I've shared with you the fact that things haven't changed a lot. If you go to Israel today, what you will find there is it's sundown on Friday that no longer are there Jewish people driving on the streets. They're in the hotels. They're serving cold food. That the elevators are set to Sabbath mode, which means that they apparently pushing a button counts as work. And so the elevators are set to stop at every floor. Well, guess what? If I'm on the 10th floor, I don't have time for that. I'm just taking the stairs. One Sabbath, the hot water heater apparently went out. The pilot went out. You can't light a fire on the Sabbath to relight the hot water heater, so everybody took cold showers. Dear friends, let me just tell you this. Sabbath was anything but a blessing. And it was far from the most restful day of the week. I hated it. But this is what these people had made the Sabbath in. Into this, this blessing that God had given them. He turned it into something, they had turned it into something that was just an abomination. It was just a back-breaking burden on these people, constantly wondering if I've broken one of these million laws that these people have written. Man, I thought I, thought I knew what work was, but apparently I don't. These people, have, they've told me so much more. And so as these guys are looking out at Jesus' disciples, and they're walking, and they're, and they're doing this, grabbing the grain, they're doing They count that as reaping. Nobody in their right mind counts that as reaping. So They're doing this. That's winnowing. They're harvesting. They're reaping. They're, they're winnowing. You see, these disciples, they hadn't broken God's law. They hadn't even broken one of the 39 made-up rules that these guys had added. It was one of the subcategories of these made-up rules that these guys had added that they had been found in offense of. This was the assault. This was the attack that these guys had against them. Now, you'll be interested to notice that they didn't call them out for walking. Surely, they walked more than 1,900 steps, right? They were traveling from town to town during this time. You'll notice that they didn't get called out for traveling more than 800 meters. You know why? Because these dudes were following them. Surely these guys had walked 800 meters as well. But here's the thing. You can break your own rules as long as you're ferreting out sin in somebody else's life. The ends justify the means. And so, yeah, I know we said that the rest of you, sorry folks, can't do this. But we can do this because we need to follow Jesus and make sure he's not, uh, not breaking these rules that we've written into written in the law and so they followed after him and they caught him it reminds me a little bit of when you're when your kids are little and you're praying with them and you get done praying and all of a sudden Lorelai goes uh, Carter's eyes were open how'd you know they knew because they followed him because they had walked after him they wanted desperately to to track him and this is how broken their legalistic system had become So much so that they found themselves in a place where they were looking at the Son of God and they were looking at his disciples and declaring them evil. Declaring them lawless. That's how twisted and upside down and broken this legalistic system can get. Again, because this system has completely separated God's law from God's person. God's law from God's mercy. In verse 25, and he said to them, have you never read what David did? I just got to stop here because this is dope. This is awesome. He's looking at the religious leaders of the day and he's saying, have you read your Bibles? There's nothing more insulting to these guys than asking this. Have you not read? This is old school. Take your gloves off. Smack them across the face. I challenge you to a duel, dear, dear sir. Like this was this was throwdown time. Have you not read? Of course they read. They were the keepers of the Old Testament. They knew what the Old Testament said. They had read about David. The problem was they hadn't understood it. They didn't have eyes that saw. They didn't have ears that heard. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did? And when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. So Jesus is referring to an event it's recorded back at 1 Samuel 21, and, and it's right after this scene where um, Jonathan, uh, King Saul's son, Jonathan, remember he had, he had befriended David, and they had this just great friendship, and he had warned them, and he was going to run off. He was going to go away and hide from King Saul. And so he finds himself in this town of Nob, N-O-B. And that's the place where the tabernacle sat. It's the place where the priests were. And he enters, in to the, he enters into the tabernacle. And so he references here a guy by the name of Abiathar. Um, the, the high priest at that exact moment was a guy named Ahimelech. But Abiathar was his son who was better known as being a high priest during that time. And so he's the one that would have been referenced at this, at this moment. So he enters in and he asks this priest for five loaves of bread. And the priest looks at him and he says, look, we don't have any common bread that just anybody can eat. All we have is holy bread. Now for us as Protestants today, we look back and go, wait a minute. What are you talking about? What kind of silly nonsense is this, talking about holy bread? But it was a thing. If you look back in Exodus 40 and Leviticus 24. What you'll find is that God had commanded the people there in the tabernacle that they were to take 12 loaves of bread. Now, don't picture little dinner rolls. Each loaf of bread was to have a pound of flour. This is big old carb-loading stuff, right? And so you're to make these 12 loaves of bread, and you're to stack them in the presence of God. It was a reminder of Israel's desperate need. The 12 tribes of Israel were represented there. It was a reminder of the desperate need of God's people to remain in fellowship with him in his presence, so each Sabbath, they were to bring in these 12 hot loaves of bread and lay them there. And then at the end of that week, they would be removed and 12 more would replace it. Now these 12 loaves that were, were removed, they were to be eaten by the priests. This was, their, this, this was the holy bread. This was their holy portion. This was set aside one of the ways that God cared for his people, for his people that served him there, the priests. And so it was only allowed to be touched by them. And now it, it seems likely that, it seems likely that David and his men might have arrived on a Sabbath because what it says is that what the, what the priest did was he did. He removed some of the older bread and brought in some hot bread. The fact that the hot bread was already there and ready to be replaced, probably this was a Sabbath when David and his men showed up. And so the priest did it. That which was otherwise off limits, that which was ceremonial, holy, and set aside, the priest took that and he gave it as an act of mercy and an act of love. He gave it to David and to David's followers. He spared their life. By taking that which was supposed to be off limits to them. This would be comparable, I suppose, today to soldiers storming into Vatican City, going into the church there, and then drinking the holy water because they're famished of thirst. The only difference is holy water is a made-up thing, and the holy bread is legit because God actually talked about it in his word. And so what's happening here is that Jesus is today pointing to that as an example. He's pointing backwards to that. And I need you to listen to me. I need you to listen to me very closely. This is part of what these guys missed. That the God of mercy never, ever, ever put ceremony, even ceremony which he has put in place above his love and his mercy for his people. The love that he has for his creation, specifically those that are made in his image, the love and the mercy and the compassion and the provision that he has for his people. It is never wrong to spare life, even if that means breaking the ceremonial law. That's what Jesus is pointing to with these people, saying, my father cherishes life. He cherishes life a whole lot more than he cherishes ceremony. So stop with that. You would look at my men and tell them they should die in a field rather than pick out their hand and pop, pop grain in their mouth. You would have done the same had you been that priest. You would have looked to David and looked to his men. Even as God's anointed, you would have looked to them and told them, no, you can't reach out your hand, you cannot take this, Brad. He's saying, that is not the nature of my God. The problem is, when you look to my God, all you see is judgment. You see no mercy, and therefore you have no mercy for the people. James 2.13 says this, For judgment without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That you receive no, uh, no mercy because you are one that issues judgment with no mercy. That mercy is to triumph over judgment because my Father is merciful. You've completely missed the point to his laws. The point to his laws was not to pour out judgment. It was an act of mercy in and of itself that he revealed himself. That he showed these people a way that their love could be directed towards him. That he called them away from sin and that ultimately he showed them their desperate need for a savior. He showed them their inability to keep even these ten standards that he had given them. again, these men were, these men were merciless. Because at their root, they didn't see the mercy, they didn't see the love, they didn't see the compassion of God. That's why it is so important. That's why I work so hard as your pastor to try, when I show up in every Sunday morning, you may notice that I spend almost all my energy trying to help you see God rightly. Instead Instead of trying to help you think through the human condition, trying to figure out the world out there, giving you 10 tips on how to manage your finances or your children or your home, I feel that my greatest responsibility is to help you see God rightly as he is. Because when we don't see God as he is, we won't understand any of the rest of this. And these guys have completely missed who God was. And so Jesus isn't saying here that these two situations are the same because they weren't. What he was saying was if a sinful man, a broken man, a man on the run, a mere man like King David, should be allowed to reach out his hand and take bread which truly my father had set apart, which was truly an offense to his ceremonial law. If King David should be allowed, and it is right and it is good for him to be allowed to reach out his hand and take that, how much more so for the Son of God himself to reach out his hand and take some grain in violation of that, which isn't my father's law. It's your made-up rules. It's you trying to impersonate my father and doing a horrible job of it. How much more right is this This should be a thing that is celebrated. Instead, you've completely missed the nature of my Father. And as a result, you call me a blasphemer. You call me a sinner. You call me one that has broken the Sabbath. Verse 27, and he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Just if we look back at the mere ordering in which God gave these things, that is he, he didn't create the Sabbath, and then look around and go, you know what, I need somebody to keep this thing. I cherish this Sabbath. The Sabbath is made in my image. I love this Sabbath more than anything else in all my creation, so I'm gonna make man so that they can uphold this Sabbath. No, 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 no. He said, let us make man in our own image. He made man and he blessed him. He looked to him and he said, listen, I don't give a bunch of restrictive rules to you. My first commandment, you remember what Jesus, what God's first commandment to Adam was? Go out and enjoy. Go enjoy the things that I've given you. Have dominion over these things. Be my representative in these things. He said, but I'm going to give you this law. The law of the Sabbath is a blessing for you. I created this for you. God didn't need the Sabbath. He didn't need the Sabbath in and of himself. And he didn't need somebody to uphold the Sabbath, so he created men. He said, it's a blessing for you to point you back towards me, to show you your need need for rest, To meet this need that you have to spend time, set apart time with me and worship and fellowship with me and to point your hearts eternally towards me in heaven where you will finally have that rest, that true rest, that rest that you long for. This is the purpose for the Sabbath. This is the purpose for all my law. I didn't create a bunch of law. I didn't create a bunch of minions to run around and try to uphold my law so that I could whoop them and beat on them and show them who's boss. I gave them for your blessing, but you've completely missed it. You put the law over man. You put the law over life. You put the law over mercy. And therefore you will find no mercy. Verse 4 of Matthew's gospel, uh, chapter 23. Matthew 23, verse 4. I said that really weird. I said it backwards. Verse 4 of 23 of Matthew. Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's what these buttheads have done. It just created a burden they had taken these blessings from god and they laid them as burdens upon these people then they stood back and they felt haughty they felt right they felt vindicated that these people couldn't bear under these burdens they wondered that jesus would come to us say listen my yoke is light my burden is easy these people were, their backs were breaking under the burden of this and how many of us today we, we we stand here today and we look back and we don't see god as a merciful god We don't see him as a loving God we don't see his law as something which sets us free which points our hearts towards him which revealed to us our need for a savior something that is flowing out from us now is his children we just see this bunch of restrictions and a bunch of stuff we can't do and so when we go out to the world the first thing we say about God is you ought to stop that you need to get your stuff together and stop doing that God doesn't like that it's no wonder We get to something like the Sabbath, and we say, hey, the Sabbath points forward to eternity. This is what eternity is going to look like. No thanks. This is what heaven looks like? Can't carry a needle? Can't write more than two letters? Can't take a hot shower? Can't eat a hot meal? No thanks. I don't think that heaven's for me. It completely misrepresented God, because they themselves didn't understand who he was. Jesus said, and the Son is Lord, even over the Sabbath. You know that that crowning? achievement in your religious system, you know that integral piece, that thing that you make yourself so proud of, that thing that you focus on more than anything else in your man-made law, all this stuff that you've made up over here, I'm Lord over that too. As a son of God, I'm the author, I am the Lord, and I'm the authority over even your Sabbath, and therefore I am the one that has the right to define it. I'm the one that has the right to look to you and say you have completely missed it and he did he defined it the Sabbath and everything else for him you'll remember these words as they came to and they said what is the greatest commandment he told them you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind with all your soul with all your heart and the second is like it you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself he's saying here's where you guys have gotten this all twisted up you won't quit looking at yourselves the purpose in this law was to get you looking out there and looking up there. And you don't do this. You consistently look in here. I was thinking about it before I came out today. I was back in my study and I was praying. And I was thinking about how many pictures I have seen of myself. I'm 40 years old. I don't know the number. I'd, 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 I'd love to know. I bet it's 10,000, you think, 1,500. I don't know. I've seen a lot of pictures of myself. Or I was thinking about the videos. I, I come out here and I preach the sermon, and then I come from a sporting background where you watch tape, figure out how you did, and figure out how to do better. So every sermon I preach, I go back and I watch that. That's an hour. Plus, Wednesday night, I watch myself again on Wednesday night, to see where I messed up. By the way, I'm pretty hard critic on myself. How much time have I spent looking? At myself, physically, literally looking at myself? And then, in addition to that, how much time have I spent spiritually and mentally looking at myself? By this point in the day, most of you have been up for four hours, let's call it. It's 10 o'clock, four hours, three hours, something like that. How many of those hours have been spent in constant thought of self? Even as we're talking about the law, what do we do? what about me? How does this affect me? How have I done? As you prepared for this worship service, I would imagine many people at home, I hope they sing the songs I like. I hope the preacher has a word for me. I hope he speaks to me. we become so me-focused. And he's saying, look, even in my father's law, he was pushing you not to self. He was pushing you to love him and to love others. So that if your law doesn't cause you to love God and love others, you ain't doing it right. And if it causes you to constant thought of self, to where you're constantly looking at yourself, instead of looking around you at the mercy that's needed by the people around you, the desperate need that surrounds you, and ultimately that law ought to drive you to the edge where you look up into heaven and you see your Father. You see in his law, he's revealing himself to us in his law. So that as you see his law, as you see his word, it's like a signpost drawing you over and saying, look. Quit looking at yourself and look at him. Do you wonder why we're so miserable? We look at ourselves. Well, look, we're not beautiful. In and of ourselves, we're not righteous. We're not good. We're not just. We're not giving. We're not loving. No wonder we walk around miserable all the time. Because we've got our heads stuck in ourselves. Consistently looking at ourselves and he's saying, look, I am glorious. I am beautiful. I am merciful. I am perfect. How about you look at something wonderful for a moment? That's what we're meant to do with his word. He's revealing himself. He's painting a picture for us of himself. The invisible God, he's saying, look at me. Then you'll be satisfied. Then you'll be fulfilled. Then you'll find joy. Then you'll be blessed then you'll be happy. But the problem is when we start looking at him and take our eyes off of ourself, that old God of self fights back. And it draws us away and it draws us away and it draws us away. Or then he calls us to look out to those around us that are in desperate need. To lay down our lives for the sake of people that most desperately need to hear from him. Listen, what difference would it make in the people around you if they just knew that somebody cared? We've, we've been sitting around as a church trying to figure out how to feed hungry people. And can I be honest? We had not found a whole lot of hungry people yet. I think it's coming. You know, we've, we sent some stuff up to the people in Alaska. We sent some stuff on to CUIC. We've, we've participated in some little pockets. But we haven't just seen these lines of people wrapped all the way around the church desperate for food. I've talked to the people at the school district. They said they've been shocked at how few people have taken them up on the free meals. For some reason, right now, in the middle of this virus, what people are seeking isn't food. And I think that's kind of neat because it's easy to hand people food and then walk away. It's easy to write people a check and then walk away, but I think that what people need right now is for somebody to care. And You look at God's law, and what is he saying? Care for your neighbor. How about you don't go kissing your uh, neighbor's wife? How about you don't covet his stuff? How about you speak truth to him? We can't get of own, out of our own way. The God of us looms so big, we can't see anything other than this. So while there's a world in need on the backside, while there's a glorious God in heaven, we're standing here staring at our own stupid face. And we hate what we see. And so we walk around sad and down and resenting all the people around us. He's saying, that's not what my father's law was for. It was for love of God and love of others. If you would do that, you will find fulfillment. You will find blessedness. You will find your purpose. You will see my father. These guys missed it, and I do too. And again, I need you to hear me. The answer is not more effort. The answer is not more rules. The answer is not to expand the fence. It's to stand out there, stare into the heavens at your merciful, loving, wonderful God, to gaze into his beauty and watch the way that you are transformed by that. Just to see his face, just to hear his voice, just to be with his people. That's the way you're transformed. That's my challenge to you this week. Every time you catch yourself kneeling at the altar of self, kneeling at the altar of you, with your eyes transfixed on the God of self, you would beg God's forgiveness and then you would fix your eyes on him. You would go out and you would focus on his people. That you would look for acts of mercy. You would look for acts of love. You would look for opportunities to lay down your life and continue to kill the God of self. What does it mean to be crucified with Christ and no longer live but have Jesus Christ now live in you? It's a reminder that Jesus Christ came to serve, not to be served, that he came to lay down his life, that the old you must die. The old you is a wretch. The old you will do nothing but clamor for your attention and drag you away from God. So to wake up every day this week and say, that me is dead, knowing he's going to pop back up. It's like a bad horror movie you walk around armed with your sword and you continue to slay and slay and slay and fix your eyes on him and love those that he's put in your path and watch the way he transformed your life? This isn't all selflessness. It is selflessness, but it is in your self-interest. It's a path of blessing. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that We don't have to jump through these religious hoops. We don't have to come up with a bunch of rules. We don't have to set a bunch of fences and hurdles just to find a way to please you and to know you and to be right with you. We thank you, Father, that our relationship with you, the forgiveness of sins, the assurance of heaven, comes only in your Son, Jesus Christ, and there is nothing we can do to earn him, to deserve him, or to justify ourselves before him. But Father God, we confess that even in our salvation, even in our right standing with you, the God of self looms so large. We focus on ourselves. We stare at ourself. We meditate on ourselves. And Father, it's insanity that we would continue to think that somehow it's going to change. Somehow we're going to become happy. Somehow we're going to become fulfilled. If we can just figure it all out. If we can just get all our ducks in a row. If we can just work on ourselves enough. We can truly love ourselves. We can truly find happiness. And it's bunk. It's a lie from the pit of hell. We know it, Father. Help us to live it. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, our glorious creator, our sustainer, our provider, the God who loves us, the God who has called us into fellowship with him. And then from that place, may we love our neighbors. May we paint to them a true picture of who this merciful God is, recognizing that for many people we meet, we're as close to Christ as they have gotten in their life. And if what they know of you is based on what they see in us, Lord, help us. So, Father God, help us to be merciful. Help us to be loving. Help us to be selfless. Help us to look like your son. So, Father, we set about now to sing praises, songs of worship. Father, this isn't just music. We know that. This isn't a concert. We aren't singing pick-me-up songs. This isn't motivation for ourselves. This is songs of praise to you because you deserve our praise. You deserve our worship. These songs aren't about us. None of this is about us. So help us in these moments as we sing these songs to fix our heart and our spirit and our minds and our souls and everything that we are on you, the only one that deserves our praise. And we know that it is there that we will fulfill our purpose and being. It is there that we will find fulfillment. It is there that we will be blessed. Help us, Father. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.